Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the light of the world. And you sent your son, he magnifies your light so that we understand the glory of the light of God. Uh, he's what lights our path. He is of light and darkness to us. So we thank you for that. We thank you that you sent your son to be the great propitiation, the great satisfactory payment, which allows us to sing amazing grace. And it never gets old. It's still amazing. And that's the mark of a saved person. We're still amazed at grace. That you would do such a mighty, miraculous work to transform our hearts undeserving as we be and cause us to be your children. That is truly amazing grace. And so we thank you for that, Lord. Be with those who can't be here. Some have gone through procedures this week. Some are still in the hospital. Some are just not feeling well and at home. We just pray, Lord, that you would show your mercy and kindness to them. Cause them to suffer well and to get through this trial, Lord. For those that you're going to take home soon, Lord, we, we ask that you be merciful. Pray for those who have lost family members recently. They're still grieving, Lord, still working through what you have done. And I pray that you would give them strength. Strength to trust you, walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time, I think last Wednesday, I'm trying to figure out Last time I was here in Numbers, uh, we had so many graduations and stuff over the weekend. Um, we finished we finished ten verses of, of Numbers chapter twenty one, and what an amazing ten verses those were. And as you remember, this was the snakes that made their way into camp by the providence and sovereign hand of God. Uh, I remember I told you this is the last of the grumbling that we see, but it was a costly one. Um, but as I reflected on that, even this morning, as I was rereading those notes and writing new ones for tonight for Numbers 22, I still, <laughs> I still can't believe, and, and, and I can, but I'm amazed that Christ makes himself out to be the serpent. He, he, he in John 3 and John 12 says, look at me and live. If you lift me up, the same words, the same understanding of Numbers chapter 21, he takes that and ties it to himself. If you lift me up, and you, and you put me up on that pole, on that cross, I will draw all men to myself. Look and live is the message. And so Christ becomes the cursed one. He's, he's the snake that is cursed. He's cursed because sin is put on him. He becomes sin who knew no sin. And he's judged on our behalf. And we look upon him and have life. That's what happened to every one of you at Salvation. You looked upon Jesus. You knew you were dying in your sin. And you believed. And God grants you that faith. And you looked and you lived. What an amazing thing. And, and that scene here, boy, in these ancient days of Numbers 21 must have been marvelous. With hundreds and thousands of people dying, those who did look lived. Well, that left us off with the nation of Israel getting ready for some wars. Uh, they're a ragtag group coming out of the desert. They've been wandering for 40 years. And now they are up against some problems. They have some kings that do not want them to pass. 
But in it, God is growing them. And I just want to briefly look at my first two points so I can get into chapter 22 because there's, talk, there's a talking donkey <laughs> in that one, and we've got to figure out why and how and what he's doing there. Um, but I do want to look at these last little sections real quick. I won't read them all. I'll just refer to them here so you know what they're about. The first thought there that, was, that I didn't get to last uh, week was Israel, number one, Israel's growing faith as they move closer to the promised land. Well, when you look at verses 10 through 20, you can kind of scour down through there just a little bit while I talk for a moment. These verses describe Israel's journey just stage by stage as they're skirting around Edom. Remember in 20, they ran into Edom, all Esau's relatives, right? And that became a problem, and they had to back out of that and get around that. And so here we find them getting around Edom skirting around that, and they're walking right into another battle, and this battle is with Sion and Og. Um, These are two kings that are going to come out against the nation of Israel. And what's interesting is this is where two and a half of the tribes end up eventually settling in their land, and you see that in this text, that they begin to dwell there. For the first time, they're not living in tents in this text. They're dwelling. And so what we do, what we do see in this text um, for a very long time that hasn't happened is the nation is rejoicing and they're celebrating as they're moving along. And you, you see things like the book of the wars of the Lord. Notice that in verse 14. Um, this is a, a, a compilation, a collection of uh, popular songs that they believe that the Hebrews sang. Uh, we, we don't have copies of them uh, it's, it's, it's songs probably that started from uh, Miriam's song at, at the washing up of, of the soldiers on the, on, on the Red Sea and so forth. They kept compiling songs. And here we see them rejoicing. Notice in verse 17 and 18, then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, sing to it. The well which the leaders sank, which the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staves. And in, uh, for the wilderness, they continued to Metana. Uh, so many of these places, as, we, as you look down through that, you'll see a lot of names there. We, we don't know where they're at today, but there were very meaningful names to them at this time. And they ended up in these songs that were in the book of the wars of the Lord. And they sang that. But verse 16 is a real highlight. Just go back one verse there. From there they continued to beer, that is, the well where the Lord said to Moses, assemble the people that I may give them water. And this was a unique situation. It's very different than what they had had in the past on this occasion. And maybe for the first time, the nation does not voice their need for water. And remember, they're still in a very dry wilderness place. I've been to this area. There's no water there. They doubtlessly were thirsty. They're doubtlessly in need of it, maybe even desperate of it. But this time, we do not see them complaining. God takes the initiative here. You'll see that in verse 16. He tells Moses, gather the nation. I'm going to provide water for them. And so God is meeting their need while they are trusting in him. And instead of murmuring, they begin to sing these songs of praise from their hearts to the Lord. And again, we, we're starting to see these small glimpses of faith that's driving this new generation. Remember, the older generation has died off. There's this new glimmers of faith. And I think I said this last week. From here on, this group really trusts the Lord. They have some stumblings here and there, like um, Achan, you know, after 
Jericho with AI and some of those things that happen, but, but they're not nationwide. This group starts to trust the Lord and great things happen all the way to the beginning of the book of Judges. Now, it's also likely that they know that the 40 years is up. Uh, they're intelligent people and they knew that God sent them to the wilderness for 40 years and, and they're back in the vicinity where it all started. And so they begin to sing these songs. They're looking forward to the promised land. And this song of the well shows a, just a, I think a lovely fragment of their appreciation for Yahweh. He's brought them through. And doubtlessly they're starting to understand that their shoes never wore out. That the bread from heaven kept falling. God kept meeting their needs. And so as the song is sung, maybe these women are coming to this well that has been dug now and God supplies water for them. They're coming and they're, they're, they're bringing their buckets and whatever it takes to quench the thirst of their families. And they're singing this song. And there's definitely a change of murmuring to worship. Notice in verse 20, we get to this Pascal, Pascal uh, mountain here. It's a mountain which... Deuteronomy 3 tells us that God took Moses up and let him view the promised land. So, I mean, they are right there. That's how we start to understand how close they are to the promised land. But it's also the mountain that we believe Moses dies on in Deuteronomy 34. We'll look at that when we get into that great book. But this helps you understand this sense of anticipation. They, they're there 40 years wandering, watching their, their parents die off. They now sense that they are there and almost in sight of this long-awaited promised land. And the graciousness of God is, I think, drawing praise out of them. Um, it must have been, I, I think it's interesting. When you think about the brazen serpent that prefigured Christ and, and Christ adorns himself to that, if you look on me, you will live. But this, here's this well that's causing great uh, worship as well. And so it's not hard to look at that and say Christ was the living waters. And so those things push forward uh, and look at Christ as well. So and it's just a good reminder. If you're weary, turn to the one who's cursed for you. Turn to the one who gives you living water. And these, these people are doubtlessly weary. Been walking around in the desert for 40 years. Their, their children are now having children and possibly grandchildren in 40 years in the wilderness. I mean... I mean, this is a long time. What, what's, what's taken place over your life in the last 40 years? They were in the desert the whole time. Think about your last 40 years. This is where they've been. And so scripture and the narrative moves, moves through a lot of time very quickly. But when you sit down and realize what this is, they are weary coming at the end. They're finally praising the Lord. 40 years and they're finally learning to praise the Lord. And he is supplying their needs. Or second thought gets us into the last part of 21 verses, uh, verses 21 through 35. And here I just said, uh, number two here, stay on the king's highway and he will fight your battles. Well, next conflict is very similar to what Israel experienced in Edom. In Edom, they came up against uh, Esau's relatives. Um, and... Again, Moses declares, when you read this passage, verse 21, notice he comes up against these kings of the Amorites, this Sion, and then later Og. Um, he says, look, verse 22, let us pass through your land. We, we won't turn off to the, into your fields, your vineyard. We won't drink any of your water from your wells. We will go by the king's highway until we pass through your border. 
And so just like the Edomites, the Amorites now are refusing to let them, even with these very kind intentions that Moses is doing, in fact, they're going to go a step farther. They're going to confront them with war. You notice this in verse 23, but Sion would not permit Israel to pass through his borders. So Sion gathered all of his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jehaz and fought against them. And so now you have this, this nation that's been wandering around for 40 years is now in a full-fledged battle. They're in a war. Um, but this time, there's no route away. They can't, with Edom, they were able to back out of that situation, go around Edom, and this one they can't. There is no way except through them to get to the Jordan River. So war was imminent in this one. But notice in verses 23 through 26, just proves that God just wipes out Sion. And then the nation passes a little further, and you'll see in verses 33 through 35, they run into the next king. This is Og, uh, the the town of Og, the king King of Bashan. They run into them, and and that, that begins to develop land for them. If you remember in some of the Psalms that... Um, they'll talk about the pastures of Bashan or the bulls from Bashan. This was extremely fertile area. Even though it was on this side of the Jordan, it was not, they had not crossed into the promised land. It was a very fertile area. And you'll remember that two and a half tribes end up asking Moses if they could stay there. They'll go into the land and fight the battles, um, but they would stay there. And so over and over in the Old Testament, does it refer to this place where two and a half tribes stay there? And I think it was just a great assurance to these to this nation that God, not only is he give you the promise, he's going to give you this to get you ready to go in and fight. And so we see that they start to settle in there. You'll notice in verse 27 through 30, they celebrate the victory over Moab. There's an interesting song here that gets sung, come Heshbon, let, let it be built, uh, so let the cities of Sion be established. It's an interesting song that kind of goes down through verse 30 there. And uh, many theologians believe that this was a song that was composed and written by the Amorites who defeated Moab, but now Israelites sing in it who defeated the Amorites. So it's a song that got passed from victor to victor, and now Israelite is singing it. Uh, just a little history there for you. Look at verse 34. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hands and all his people and all his lands, and you shall do to him as you did to Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbron. So um, here in verse 34, the conflict is, is difficult. Um, they're, they're not a, 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 a group that's been used to war, uh, but, but God brings them in and says, look, the battle's been won. And, and, I, and I think that's just a good reminder as we deal with the world. We, we have some battles going on there, don't we? There's some crazy stuff going on there. If you, if you keep your eye on the worldview of, uh, biblical worldview of what's going on, you know there's battles out there. But verse 34, notice it just reminds you that, that here the battle belongs to the Lord. The victory is his, and, and they need to have faith in their God and Savior, that he's going to take them through. There. There's no power on earth that can oppose him. There's, there's no one that can stop his work despite what man does. No matter what conflicts they arise, God is greater than that. When you get into the early church, they ran into a lot of difficult times. In Acts chapter 14, 
they had gone through some very challenges. Um, Paul and the apostles and some of the other followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in verse 21 that after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, and they strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And what's interesting about that, I bring that up because Paul goes through those cities, uh, Iconium and, and Lystra and so forth. In each city that he gets beat up in, there's, there's some really difficult things that go on in those cities. He goes through, he waits a little while, and he says to the guys who are with him, let's go back. Let's go back and strengthen their souls. And then he reminds everybody that getting into the kingdom of God goes through tribulation. And so we don't tell people when they get saved, oh, now you're saved. Boy, your life is just going to be a, 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 you know, a piece of cake. No, life gets much difficult, doesn't it? Now you know what sin is. <laughs> now you've got to start confronting it through the power of the Spirit and the Word of God. And so many tribulations must be taken on in order to enter the kingdom of God. But the battles can be intense. And, and what I thought about this and what a had a little more time, you, you can really sit down and say, this was an intense battle, but God was ahead of them. And, we, here, and here's what he says, stay on the king's highway. Are you on the king's highway? Is that where you're at? Or do we want to get off and we want to wander in the weeds and get ourselves in trouble? Nothing but problems there. Well, let's press into chapter 22 and see if we can get into this donkey a little bit and what's going on there. Three, God uses an interaction with a false prophet to bring about his will. Look at the first 14 verses of 22 with me. Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond Jordan opposite of Jericho. Now you know how close they are, right? I mean, they are right there on the door. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. If you're, if you're, you know, you're in war or your neighbors are in war, you better send spies and kind of watch what's going on. This is, this is good, good way to see who you're up against, right? You got your, we got our drones out there. They got spies sitting in the rocks watching this. Verse 3, so Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this horde, it, will lick up all that is around us as an ox licks up the grass in the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, uh, was king of Moab at the time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is, in the, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, and called him, saying, Behold, a people coming out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite of me. Now therefore, come, please come, Curse this people for, for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the, with the fees for divination in their hands. And they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. And he said to them, spend the night here, and I... Will, um, I will bring the word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. And the elders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there is a people who has come out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come, 
curse them for me. Perhaps may I be able to fight against them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak, leaders, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. That's actually not exactly what he said. And the leaders of Moab arose and went back to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Well, here the narrative picks up this um, prophet, this Gentile seer of some sort. His name is Balaam. He has some kind of relationship with this king of Moab named Balak, as you see there. And the king is desperate. He sees the nation of Israel. He sees what God is doing through this nation. They're crushing his enemies and and the ones next door to him. And he is fearful. And so he asks that this Balaam, this Gentile prophet of some sort, would bring a curse upon the nation of Israel in an attempt to stop them. Now, a key point of interpretation is that Balak is extremely fearful of the nation of Israel. That becomes really clear when you read that. And he he's, wants to somehow hinder or frustrate or even destroy the work of the people of God that's, that's coming towards the promised land. Now, he, he takes in, the way he's going to do this is he's going to go after Balaam. And when you first read this, you kind of think, well, who's this Balaam? He seems to know to talk to God. And you start to think, well, maybe he's not such a bad guy. He's caught in a difficult circumstance. And, but we'll see later what particularly the New Testament says about him so we can understand he's not who you think he is. Now, the previous attacks that went on in chapter 21 from Sion and Og, those, those things were, they were organized, they were direct, they were impulsive. They, I mean, they reacted and they came at the nation of Israel. This is a little different. Balak is sly. He is subtle here and he's devious. And he is going to try to attack this nation through a curse. Now, it's important to understand that it shows there is great spiritual warfare out there. Who's going to pick up a curse? What deity would jump on that? Well, not, not the God of Israel. He's after the gods of the pagans, right? And who comes with those? Well, the demonic world. And so this is very real here, and it it is very much spiritual warfare. And he's trying to join himself, this human, this wicked king, trying to join himself with the principalities of this fallen world in an attempt to overthrow God's plan. Well, that sounds like what's been going on since the fall. And so here we see a very satanic attack against God's people. Interesting enough, in the ancient world, when they would go to war, get ready for war, it was very customary for them to find someone who was some kind of prophet, some kind of seer, some kind of religious person who could throw a spell or, a, or cast a curse on that enemy. This was done quite often. I think even if you've ever watched like the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien tries to bring that out. Um, in, in some of these things. And, and if you study the Old Testament enough and you watch Lord of the Rings, you can see where some of that narrative was pulled out of that. Um, but here it seems that Balaam is somewhat accustomed to this. When you read this, you kind of go, well, it's like Balaam, he's part of this. Like he's done this before. So you start to get an understanding that Balaam's not a good guy. Oh, yeah. How much is that going to, how much are you going to give me to curse these people for you? 
See, this is probably what's going on in his heart, and this is what God is going to bring out. He's going to deal with Balaam, and he's going to protect his people. But he seems to have some kind of reputation here. Notice in verse 6 and 7 there, we, we see it in 6 and 7. Now, therefore, please come, curse this people for me. Well, why would he ask Balaam of all people to curse him? Because he's used to Balaam cursing people, most likely. This is what he does of some sort. He's some kind of seer, some kind of prophet, goes around cursing people and getting money for it. Sounds like a politician or something. But Balaam, he seems to react real indifferent here, doesn't he, to the request for the curse. He, he actually just tells these elders here in verse 8 of Moab, well, okay, spend the night here. Let's see if I, get a, if I receive a word from the Lord. So he, he uses a divine name. It's interesting. He, he Actually, in verse 8, Balaam uses the word Jehovah, which would have been linked by then to the God of Israel. And then he actually uses that word. But the, the narrator who, who's writing this, most likely Moses here, he, in verse 9 and 10, uses Elohim speaking of the sovereignty of God. So so it's fascinating that Balaam would call upon the Jehovah, the God of Israel, to curse the nation of Israel. So all kinds of issues going on here, isn't it? Now it seems Balaam is ignorant of what is really a truly special relationship that Jehovah has with Israel. He, he seems to be ignorant of it. In fact, he's, he's going to go, well, let me go talk to God and, and see if, you know, how I should curse them, right? Verse 12. It's very clear that the Lord is now making himself known to Balaam. And Balaam seems to be aware of God's authority. And so he knows he must get a word from him of some sort. And, and maybe this is what he does with, with deities or something. He goes and tries to get a word. And probably in many cases it was demonic. But here he wants to know from the God of Israel of what to do. Now remember, and don't forget this, he is a false prophet. And regardless of God's instruction to him, it's clear he's forbidden to go with these men and he's forbidden to curse this nation in verse 13. But Balaam's relationship with God becomes even more clear in the following verses. We'll see as it goes along. But I just want you to remember what the Bible says about Balaam before we go any further. Let me just read you some verses. You can jot these down and look at them later. 2 Peter chapter 2, 14 through 15, a massive passage on false teachers. Bible says this, having eyes full of adultery, this is talking about Balaam, that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam. This is what the New Testament talks about him. So when you first read this, you've got to go, well, who is this guy? He's talking to God, and he's, you know, he's, he's doing something. Well, the New Testament tells us that he's an unrighteous. He lo- the Bible says in there, in that last verse in 2 Peter 2.15, that he loved the wages of unrighteousness. This man is greedy, and he's using God to gain money, and God knows it. Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Jude, verses 11 and 10, uh, 10 and 11 say this. But these men revile things which they do not understand, the things which they know by instinct, like unreasonable, uh, unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, 
for they have gone the way of Cain, there's one guy, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and they perished in the rebellion of Korah. So there's three groups, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, that the New Testament links with greed. And you remember what happened to Korah. They're going, well, why can't we have what you have? Like Moses, you, know, you, you get to go into the tent of God. Why want to go in? Earth, swall, earth opens up and swallows them. Greed. And this is what we start to understand. Because when you cursory read, you're going, well, is this Balaam a bad guy or a good guy? He seems to pray and want to talk to God. He's wicked. And he's full of greed. And God's about ready to deal with him. And so the end, God is going to use a false prophet to prove who his true children are. He's going to do this. Now, four, here, fourth, God sees the motives of the heart despite the outward appearance. Look at verse 15 through 21 with me. Then Balak again sent leaders. Remember, he sent the other ones home, more numerous and more distinguished than the former. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me. More money. I mean, it's, he's putting it on the line here. For I, indeed, for I will indeed honor you richly. And I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then, curse this people for me. And Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Again, Sounds good, but not his motive. Look at verse 19. Now, please, uh-oh, you also stay the night here. I'm going to go back and ask again that I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, you shall do. So Balaam arose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the leaders of Moab. Now, at this point, the narrative becomes a little more complicated, doesn't it? Balak, refused, uh, uh, Balak refuses to accept Balaam's decision, right? So he sends this another dele delegation of, of even more prominent men than the previous ones. And, and Balaam, look, Balaam's response in verse 18 is very similar to his response in verse 13. You can see that. But in verse 19, here's where he stumbles. Balaam asks the delegates to stay over another night in order to see if there's anything, anything more that God wants to say. Maybe he'll change his mind. There's a tremendous amount of wealth on the line here. And Balaam's pushing it. He wants to see somehow where he can get to that wealth without going against the word of God. And now we begin to see the moral character of Balaam being exposed here. Notice in verse 20, that's exactly what we see in this remarkable exchange of, of this divine instruction coming, somewhat divine instruction coming to this prophet. He, God allows him to go, um, but again, it's, it's, he has clear instructions. Verse 20 says, God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, arise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, you shall do. He's after something else, and God is restraining him from what, he, what his heart really wants to do. And we see that. And he's going to expose this greed. He's going to expose his violent anger that he has. And he's going to show these selfish desires. Now, I think when the reader 
reads this, if you just read this, you're kind of surprised, right? You, you go, what, is God changing his mind here? Is God going to actually, I remember the first time, well, a long, long time ago reading this, go, is God going to let Balaam curse Israel? Kind of when you first read it, right? Is, is that what he's going to do? He's going to let him do that. And furthermore, it, it becomes obvious that Balak's persistence against God's word is pressing, right? He, he's pressing in on Balaam, and, 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 and is God, how's God going to handle that? What kind of judgment is he going to bring on Balaam for doing this and Balak and so forth? And you start to a- ask these questions as you read through this. But one thing is clear. God, God is um, he's reading this false prophet's heart. He knows it. He knows his sinful motives. He knows the motives of men, doesn't he? And they can't be hidden from him. He knows his desire for gain, and God is going to expose it. And I, I think God sometimes grants sinful requests in order to expose sin. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, I think we have an example in it. You have earlier, you have the nation of Israel murmuring and grumbling against God because of this bread that falls out of heaven every day, and they don't want it, and they want meat. And God says, you want meat? I'll fly it in for you. And the Bible says while it was still in their teeth, he sent a wasting disease and killed thousands of them. Psalms 106, one of the great historical psalms, recounts it, verse 15. So he gave, the Bible says, so he, God, gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. In the heart of hearts in Balaam, he wants that money. That's what the passages in the New Testament tell us. He is greedy and he wants that. And so God sometimes allows them to go down that road to in order to expose those sinful desires and then bring judgment or expose those for a believer so that we we repent. And that's what he seems to be doing. Fifth, a divinely speaking donkey in the words of God. Look at verses 22 through 35 with me. Follow along as we read. But God was angry. Whoa. Didn't you say you could go? So you've got to keep thinking through this. What's God doing here? What's the motive of this man? And you start to understand the motive of this man is wicked greed. And God hates that, right? And so God was angry because he was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of a, as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey, and two servants were with him. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. And then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, he pressed her, uh, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And so Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. Uh-oh. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. This is amazing. And she said to Balaam, what have, you, uh, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a mockery of me, if there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden 
all of your life to this day? And have I ever been accustomed to you to do so? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. Very key point in your Bible right there on Mark. Verse 33, but the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it, displeases, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. Well, this confrontation between Balaam and the angel of the Lord becomes quite intense here. But it also affirms the understanding of this deceitful nature of Balaam, this false prophet's heart. He's bringing this out. And it's a clear expression of God's divine anger against greed, against Balaam's intentions that are in his heart. And here there's also just a clear restraint against him to keep him from acting on his intentions. And I thought that that's quite fascinating. There's no way that you, that you can't get around the fact that he's going there with the goal to get something out of this. And God is stopping him from the intentions of his heart. I think that's pretty amazing when God does that. And we thank the Lord that he does it. I think it's key here. There are times where our hearts are not where they should be and God restrains us from going doing things that we shouldn't. There's other times he allows us to go forward and then shows those things uh, sinful in our hearts and brings us to repentance. But there are other times he restrains us and we thank God for those many times that he's done that. Now, the scene here is nothing short but supernatural, isn't it? Donkeys don't talk. Balaam's donkey, he, he, she can see this angel, right? And the animal's reaction is convincing, isn't it? <laughs> when you study this, she, she sees what's in front of her. Balaam himself remains completely unaware of the situation. Why? Because he's most likely caught up in what he wants to do. He is not sensing what's going on. I, 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 I don't think I ran into the angel of the Lord, but I was coming home with a bunch of cows one day, um, pushing them off the mountain. You, you start them about 10,000 feet, and you've got to get down to about five, and so you've you got to run them to keep them tired, keep them ahead of you, and they're strays, and they're very difficult to get. And I remember pushing them down a canyon. And once we got them in this canyon, it's called Haystack Canyon. Um, they'd get in that canyon and they'd, they'd, canyon and they'd funnel down there. And sometimes you just, you just don't want to push them too hard because they've got a lot of calves with them. So I backed off and I'm going down this and I'm on one of my best horses. I love this horse. His name was, he had a backwards BK brand on him, so we just call him BK. And I remember him coming. I'm loping down, heading straight down this thing. And man, he just hits the brakes. And he's fighting me. He just does not want to go down through where it kind of narrows down there. I, and this is a great horse. This is a horse that will run through a wall for me. I mean, this horse would, there's horses that we've had that will, they'll, they'll go so hard their heart will quit. And you have to back them off. You have to make them stop working because they'll work so hard. That's the kind of horse this was. He would not go through that little cut. I could not get him through there. You know, I'm giving a couple of under-overs and a few spurs in the belly. He ain't going. Finally, I said, uh, there's something there. 
And I turned around and went back to another way, and I ran into old saddle bum not too long after that. And he said, hey, did you see that dead deer and that lion on that deer down through that cut? And I said, no, I couldn't get my horse to go down through there. He goes, oh, yeah, that lion was sitting there. I came down there just a little bit ago. My horse freaked out, you know. And uh, so animals certainly have a sense to certain things like that. But this, and that's not supernatural, but this is. This donkey knows that there's death there. And my horse knew that that lion's going to jump on my rider and had enough sense to turn around. And so this is a miraculous event, especially when this tongue gets open. Now, my horse never said anything to me, thank the Lord, because uh, uh, I probably wouldn't be here today. Uh, you wouldn't believe anything I had to say. Um, uh, but this is supernatural. God releases the tongue of this donkey, and he's talking in clear understanding. Uh, you know, under, understandable enunciation of language of whatever it was, right? And, and you can't help but feel for the donkey a little bit in the story. He's caught between a drawn sword of the angel of the Lord and a very angry master. She's in a difficult spot. And you've, maybe you've heard that, you know, you've heard that saying that, you know, if God can use a donkey, he can use you. I, I think the greater thought here, when you look at that, this is, that we can find ourselves in the donkey's position most of the time. The world's constantly pushing us to go down a path, to go down something that God says not to go. And you're fighting it, you're caught in it. And we as Christians get caught in this all the time. And maybe dear family members, and I, I remember I've, I use this term regularly because I think it's true. There's a relational theology, right? And we see it when children or family members get caught up into immoral activity or they choose to do something that God has said absolutely not. He is an abomination to him. It's not, but, but, but everybody starts to try to justify it. It gets very difficult and you see preachers after preachers in this nation who have caved on homosexuality because if you follow it back, they have a son or they have a daughter. And they try to justify and they work around and they, they try to read Hebrew words. Oh, well, maybe, they, maybe it means this. And, and in, in the end, they don't. And, and I, think, I, I, I think I find myself more in line with a donkey here because there's times there, there, you're, in this pa- you're in this world, right? And many of you have jobs in the world, your sales, your, you, you work in the commerce of the world or, or something going on. And, and it's difficult out there. And you, you believe the word of God. You have the word from God. You know it. And, and yet the world is saying compromise in this area. And you, you, you feel caught. So I think the donkey's the best lesson here. It's not that she's talking and that you say, well, if a don- God can use a donkey, he can use you. Sit down. Sit down and stop right where you are and say, God, I can't go any further with this. I can't go any further. And if it means somebody's going to kill me, I, I, it's okay. I can't go any further. And, and I, I think there's just a great lesson there. And I, I really appreciate that donkey. <laughs> it reminds us, hey, we don't have to go down that path. There's, there's, you know, the wages of sin is death. And you go down that path too far, there's nothing but death down that. That's what sin does. It, it kills. There's times to sit down, not go down those paths. But Balaam was greedy, wasn't he? And, and this is what we find. And Balaam's donkey sees what Balaam can't see. And thus the donkey reacts the way Balaam should have reacted. 
And what's interesting, we get in 23, when I get back, we'll get into chapter 23. So God's going to say, just like he did there with the donkey three times trying to go through, he's going to put Balaam in three positions to look at the nation of Israel. And he's going to put him in a position, are you going to curse them or are you going to bless them? He's going to put him right back in the position he had the donkey in. It's fascinating. We'll look at that later. Now, what about this talking donkey? Because I know somebody's going to ask me, to talk to the talking, talk, talk about the talking donkey. I got asked already. Now, when you look at this, um, it's very intriguing. And when we see something so far out of the natural realm within the scriptures, it, it, it's intriguing, isn't it? it? But let me say, it's nothing short of miraculous. Now, what happened was the Jews, uh, the Hebrews, believed and there's no record in the scriptures, there's no, no way to support this or be dogmatic, the Jews believe that animals spoke before the fall. And they all attribute that to a snake that taught, that talked, right? And, and then you, you come across a lot of Christians who have adopted such a view, but nowhere in the Bible can you support that. Satan is crafty. He, 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 craftiness and the serpent are linked together throughout the scriptures from then on. And, and for whatever things that, whatever reason it happened and how that happened, the Bible doesn't tell us, we don't know. But then you take, you take things like Narnia, right? <laughs> Which we all enjoy, you know, we, we enjoy C.S. Lewis' Narnia, and these animals talk and they seem very realistic. And yet, there's no support scripturally that that happened. So we can't be dogmatic there. And yet, there are, on many occasions, God uses animals in a, in a unique way, or he allows them to be used in a unique way. And, and two are the one, the snake, where the serpent in, uh, Satan enters the serpent and deceives Eve. And, and then here, this donkey can see an angel and he can speak. And so, God takes these things, and it, it seems fitting that God would use a donkey to expose the, the heart of Balaam. You can put those kind of terms together if you want. But I think he's doing something there. And, and, and when we think about donkeys, I, I thought about this today. I thought, well, I wonder if their view of donkeys is the same view of ours. The horse has been so developed now. Uh, and not that horses weren't around during this time. We saw the Egyptians had horses and chariots. But the nation of Israel really rarely has many horses, tell Solomon. Um, the donkey was the main transportation. They're, they're easy to handle. They're easy to train. You can... You know, they're, they're durable. They don't need a lot of food or water. There's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but we have a view of a donkey now because they, they've become kind of the lesser of the beast of burdens that we use now. But the Bible uses that donkey to show the foolishness of Balaam. I got thinking about foolishness. And I found a verse. Psalms 69.5 uh, says, Oh God, it is you who knows my folly or foolishness. And my wrongs are not hidden from you. And so when you look at verse, like a verse like verse 30, look at verse 30 with me. The donkey said to Balaam, am I, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. And one of the things that you look at this, I said, there's a real difference between the comparison of the donkey's loyalty and the foolishness of, of Balaam. You can't miss it. The donkey's super loyal. I've been loyal to you. And, and Balaam's a fool. And fools act rashly and violently. That's what they do. 
So God is, again, just using a simple animal to expose the wickedness of this so-called prophet. Now, notice verse 32. And here's, here's the lesson. And this is why we know he's way out. He's not following the Lord. He's in this for greed. Look at the end. It says, because I have come out as your adversary. God came out against Balaam because your way was contrary to mine. Balaam was in absolute contrast to what God wanted. Not on the outward because he said go. So he goes outwardly, but inwardly he's greedy and wants that money. And he says, you're contrary to me. You got any greed in your life? Are you chasing things that maybe are not a God? I mean, we have to watch that, right? I mean, you know, it, we, we try to make enough money to support our families and, and maybe put some away for retirement and get our kids through schooling. And there's just this, the way society is set up, you know, we need money, right? We need money to, to live on and pay bills and all of those things. And yet, that same thing that God gives us to manage our homes can become this great greed. And we have to watch out for that. And the more you study those verses, every time Balaam spoken of the New Testament, it's always centered around wicked greed. And the warnings are there for us. And this is why God says, you're contrary to me. You're contrary. Not only are you contrary to me in your greed, you're contrary against my people. Those are my people down there. And you're going to curse them so you can gain money? Notice verse 33. But the donkey saw me, and he turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside, I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. See, if it wasn't for the donkey's reaction to the angel of the Lord, Balaam would have certainly been destroyed. And certainly this must have been a humbling event in this prideful prophet's eyes right there as this donkey should have lived. And the Bible says in, in verse 31 that he bowed. So I got thinking about donkeys and how God uses things. And then I, I remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. There he says that God uses the foolish things of this world. A donkey is kind of a, a joke now, right? He's called an ass. And that becomes a, a, a derogative, derogative term towards people now. It's, um, it's just interesting. And, and yet the Bible says God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. Balaam thinks he's so wise. Well, I'll obey God. See, I'm obeying God outwardly. I'm doing this inwardly. He's wicked. And God uses a, a foolish donkey, uh, a thing, something maybe foolish to the world to expose the sin of Balaam. Verse 35, the, re, the command goes out again, though. Only speak my words. And you say, well, why does he do that again? Why does he have to say that again after all that, after the sword and donkey and angel and all that stuff? Because that's what's in his heart. How can I say the things of God and still get the money? This is where he failed. Last thought here, then i got to quit. What man curses, God blesses. Look at the end of this, 36 through 41. Then Balak heard that Balaam was coming. He went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the Aaron border, at the extreme end of the border. Then Balak said to Balaam, did I not ur urgently send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? 
So Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you, I have come now to you. Am I able to speak anything at all? <laughs> that's, that's not a really happy phrase there. He's upset. The word the Lord God puts in my mouth that I shall speak. He's doing this out of rote. He knows that he'll die if he doesn't. Verse 39, and Balaam went to Balak, and they came to Kirith, uh, Hudzai, I worked on that word early today. Uh, Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent from uh, sent to Balaam and the leaders who were with him. Then it came about in the morning when Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high place of Baal. I'll give you a little hint there. And he saw from there a portion of the people. Well, here you have the city of Moab. Um, Here's the situation. It's near this Aaron border. And it seems that probably, uh, as I look at the map, Balaam is coming down from the north. Balak's coming up from the south. And they're meeting in a place where they can see a portion of the nation of Israel assembled down in the valley. And the king is clearly annoyed. You can see it in verse 37. Why aren't you here? (laughs) I think Balaam wasn't used to being treated like a king like that. Like you don't come when I tell you to. Um, but there's also, notice there's that hint of familiarity. The way they're talking, it's like this has been done before. Uh, you know, remember we cursed these, these Moab, you know, these, these Amorites before. Um, you know, why didn't you come back? And then there's this question of money that comes up by Balak. Do you, you want more money? You can see that it's leaning into that this, what he knew what Balaam wanted. He knew who he was. And then Balaam's response to the king's criticism is classic. He goes, look, I'm here now. I'm here. I almost got killed getting here. I'm not going to get anything out of this because I can't say what I want to say. I've got to say only what the Lord says, so I'm going to go home broke. I think that's what he's after. And so he makes this smart aleck comment, well, I'm here now. But then he basically says, all I got is my presence. All I can say is, is what is in accordance with the Lord. Now, from city of Moab, they travel together in the northern direction there. And what's interesting is they, they offer these oxen and sheep possibly to Baal. Because remember, they're, they're not, these people don't, they don't love the king of Israel, I mean the God of Israel. They roast this meat, they have this, this dinner, most likely they do that with dignitaries, and this is what, how they strengthen allies of some sort. But there's no reason to believe that Balaam was still trying not to figure out how to curse and get this wealth. In the morning, Balak takes Balaam, and notice he takes him to this high place where Baal is worshipped, and there he sees just a fringe of the armies. And we can't look at this tonight. We're, when I come back, we'll do 23 on. But it is so fascinating because each time he's going to try to, he's going to try to curse him, but he can't. And so, so Balak doesn't get what he wants, so he takes him to another view. So this is how big the nation of Israel is down in this valley, and 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 it's very mountainous, and and it's hard to see all you know millions of people down in there. So so they move to the next spot. They try to look down there, and he tries to get Balaam to curse him again, and he can't. He can't do it. He knows he can't do it. So they go to the third spot. And in the end, they've spent all this time and all this money and almost got killed. And they can't curse God's people because you're never going against God's people. He's going to stand with them. And it's just a fascinating story. But in the end, it just helps us think through. Are we, 
Where are we at with God in the world? I mean, this guy says, I'm going to talk to the God of Israel. I'm going to talk to Jehovah. So he seems to maybe know who this God of Israel is, seems to have some outward relationship, but inwardly his heart is very wicked. Something to think about. A lot of people know who Jesus is. A lot of people say a Lord's Prayer. A lot of people will cross themselves. They'll act spiritual. They'll even show up to services and be religious. But inwardly, their hearts are desperately wicked. And that was Balaam. And in the end, God protects his people. Undeserving people. Nation of Israel, stiff-necked, stubborn. Man, they failed so many times. But they're God's people. And he protects them. And that's what he does for us. And so let's be quick to recognize where greed is working in our life or something that's contrary to God. Maybe it's not greed, but is there something that's contrary to God? Let's deal with that. Let's deal with that and say, Lord, take this from me. I don't want to be this way. I don't want to go down that path. There's nothing but death down that path. It's death of something. Let me just lay down right here until I can get right with God. Father, thank you for this lesson. It's fascinating story. We've all known about it. We've read the story of Balaam's donkey. And yet, it's centered around a prophet who is contrary to you. And yet, you stop him from going down certain paths of death. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not go with the world. James 4, 4 says, Lord, a, f- a friend of the world is no friend of you. In fact, it's called an enemy of God. So we have to be in this world, and we have to be good employees and employers. We need to be good taxpayers, and we need to be good citizens in this world, but we're not of it. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so, Lord, help us live right on this earth. Help us be reminded you're protecting us. You're fighting our battles. You're the one who goes before us. You don't let anything happen to us that you have not already predetermined before the foundations of the world. But help us walk that way, Lord. So easy to get caught up in ourselves. So easy to be consumed with me. Instead of you, God. And then we find ourselves on a path that is contrary to you. Oh, Lord, we'll end up hanging out or marrying or being with the wrong people. We'll end up with all kinds of problems in our lives when we're walking on a path contrary to you. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us constantly take account of where we're walking. Are we with you? Are we following you? Or are we following the world? Lord, strengthen us in these areas. In Jesus' name, amen.